0: Ladies and gentlemen and kind people from all around the world, we're coming at you from Carolopolis. Yes, this is the Paul Leslie Hour. We wholeheartedly thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy your time with us today. Now, Before we start the show, there are some words from American founding father George Washington. I'm quoting here. If the freedom of speech is taken away, then dumb and silent we may be led like sheep to the slaughter. That comes from the Newburgh Address, March 15, 1783. Our guest today is a believer in free speech and our inalienable rights. Our host, Paul Leslie, has an interview in this episode with Paul T. Leslie. Hey, another Paul Leslie? Could this be? Well, more on that in a moment. This interview with Paul T. Leslie is a long time coming, and we're glad it's here. These topics are heavy, but the kind of questions that the Paul Leslie Hour likes to explore. Just a brief announcement, folks. You can keep this show coming, by going to the com slash support. We thank everyone who contributes. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I will leave it with the polls, Both of them. Well, thank
1: you, Dan. So today is a very special occasion I've done many, many interviews on this show, now numbering in the hundreds and hundreds. This one is special. This is someone who is very close to me. (laughs) Birth name, Paul T. Leslie. This is my father I'm going to be talking to. And these are questions I like to think about. They're questions that I think are starting point questions that can get you going in all kinds of directions, but they're very important things to think about. And I'm very glad that we have this chance to talk. Me too, Paul. So I think just before we begin, if we could get just a little bit, where were you born?
2: Altoona, Pennsylvania, 1946, November 1st.
1: What part of the state of Pennsylvania is is that?
2: It's called, uh, I guess you would say West Central. West Central. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, there's. Uh, it's in the mountains. The Appalachian Mountains run up through the center of Pennsylvania. Altoona is built in the mountains. You know, my earliest memories are looking out the streets and seeing the mountain ranges on either side. It was great sledding for a kid.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you were born just after World War II. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... There were many, many Americans born during that time. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, we're uh, considered to be part of the baby boomers. And I'm on the early edge of that. Right. So, yeah. Me and my sister Sharon, she was born a year before I was. So, so 45 and 46. So, it was right after, like you said, the end of World War II. And my father didn't fight in the war, but all the. You know, all the soldiers, Marines, the sailors all came home and started a life, and starting a life for many of them was starting a family.
1: Hmm. So, when you think about that time, when when you were growing up in the, the 40s and 50s, yeah. did you have much of an identity
2: in terms of being an American? Yeah, I did. I, I, you know, I, I can speak for myself, and I'm surprised at some of the memories that I have. If I remember correctly... I think like the Soviet Union when they invaded uh, Hungary, and you know I can remember seeing pictures of the tanks rolling into into you know to suppress you know the revolt that they had. Other kinds of things too, like the like when Castro took over Cuba. Those are really still in me fresh memories. And uh, when I was a little bit older, I can remember. Well, I don't even know, I shouldn't even say a little bit older. I was still probably just a, a real a little boy. but uh, it was, And it was probably related to shortly after the war, but like either Memorial Day parade or, you know, something like that. I've gone to the parade with my mother and uh, me and my sister Sharon and standing there and seeing all the troops marching through the city streets of Altoona and that was my first exposure, and I still remember it to this day, the little poppies and, you know, asking about the poppies and what, what was involved in that. So you know, for me, I've always been conscious of those kinds of things, so.
1: How would you describe from your memory America in the 50s?
2: I often think back to that period of time now, because I'm old enough to have lived through a lot of changes and seen great changes. In the country, when I was a little boy, like I said, like living in Altoona, and I can relate it to when I was in first and second grade, and I know it was related to at least that because by third grade I would moved to another location, just a couple blocks from from this this one. But where I lived in Altoona, Pennsylvania, it was real close to the railroad shops. Across the street from me was a huge ball field, and beyond that were all open fields. And what was a National Guard armory? And for me, me and my friends, we could go, we'd walk up to the, the corner store, have like maybe a quarter. And my mother would make a sandwich for us. We'd buy a bottle of pop, maybe a candy bar, pack it in our knapsack. We'd go over to the National Guard fields. They already had, because they, they did uh, training for the military there, foxholes and things like that. So it was a great place for us to play army. But the point that I'm making out of that, not that I played Army so much, was the freedom that we had because we would basically be gone. And we'd walk for big distances all through those fields and woods, exploring streams and all those kind of stuff. And now when I see, you know, people are afraid to let their kids play in their front yard. You know, so I've seen, you know, like changes to me are – not for the better, but they're a loss of what America used to be. Every once in a while, like on Facebook, for example, I'll see a post where they talk about something like what did it mean when the street lights came in came on? Well it minute it was time to go home for dinner, you know? Because other than that, we didn't sit at home and play games on the computer or anything like that. We were in the streets, riding bikes, playing basketball, swimming and all of that. And we were just free, free to go out and run and burn off energy and play. And I think there's a lot of that that's lost in America today. Hmm. So. What kind of stuff did you read when you were a youngster? I, I can't remember that a lot. One thing I can remember is listening to, I grew up listening to classical music. My dad, he loved it. And I think it was back on those old 78 RPMs, you know. But I used to love that. And I did read... And I just can't remember, I, but I can remember reading things like The Last of the Mohicans and things like that when I was young. And when my family moved from Pens- Altoona, Pennsylvania to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, I was in, I think, let me see how old, would I have been? I think like fourth grade or something like that. You had to take turns reading in the class. <laughs> and they stopped when, when it was my turn to read. And the teacher came and hugged me because I could read, you know. Hmm. You know, and that came just because I read, you know, already on my own. But I can't remember a lot about, you know, all the books that I read. So, but you said that you you were into classical music. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, I still love it today. I don't listen to it as much, but you know, it's a note in me that uh, I respond to. You know, because to me it's very evocative. You know, of uh, you know all kinds of emotions. There's one that's uh, a favorite of mine that I've enjoyed it, uh, as an adult. I don't think I listened to that particular piece. I don't know when it was created. Ralph Vaughan Williams. Uh, uh, what was it called? Now the the flight of uh, the sparrow. I think it's called. I get in that, and then I just listen to I get to, I get you know taken to another place. So.
1: Well, right outside the window here, there are these birds and they're making some, some sound and they're eating from a feeder. Uh-huh. Have you always been someone who loved animals?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, like I said, I grew up in nature when I was a little kid. Like I said, me and my buddy, we, we would tromp through the woods, like I said, exploring s- f- streams, et cetera. And, you know, I can remember catching salamanders and frogs and snakes you know, I'm we were the to bad boys. I don't think they would do it so much now. But I'd take snakes to school in my pocket <laughs> and uh, collect garter snakes. With other ones we call grass snakes. Had red racers, and I can remember ca- catching some of them, keeping them in a, little, in a little box. And then my father was a hunter, and so from early, you know, before I wasn't allowed to hunt, I was way too too young. But I would uh, accompany him on certain kinds of hunts you know i can remember walking through the woods with him squirrel hunting he used to hunt groundhogs a lot so you know i'd go and i'd be not the gun bearer but he had like sticks that with a leather strap on to rest the rifle on cuz they would shoot i mean really long distances mm-hmm. so that was like my my part of it you know so but i grew up hunting and all my life i've been interested in in the outdoors
1: Do you see an increased separation from people and the natural world in these times?
2: Oh, my, yes. Like, I referenced Facebook earlier, and every once in a while I'll see Mm it, like a, 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 you know, there'll be a a thread on Facebook that will start, and it may be to show a guy with an animal that he, you know, has shot. And the hostility that it draws is just amazing, and uh, they consider it... him to be a murderer, and the death of the animal to be murder, you know, and you see and hear people talk about, uh, you know, they they think that all the meat, you know, like if you want beef, well, that comes from the grocery store. It doesn't come from the farmer's field and and the meat packing plant, you know. <laughs> so yeah, there's a great there's a great uh, golf in that. When we moved to South Philadelphia, I could remember, like I said, we lived out in, you know, in in the mountains. I lived in the city, but it was in the mountains. And I had relatives that were farmers and other things like that. So I was always connected to nature and farms and fields, et cetera. But uh, friends of ours in Philadelphia one time went with us up to Altoona and we were youngsters and like maybe uh sixth seventh grade something like that and they were they were astounded when we went past some farm fields and they saw cows it was the first time they'd ever even seen a cow in mm. their life so That's yeah. yeah it really is yeah
1: well i want to get into some of the the meaty questions all right
2: hmm.
1: how much of who we are is
2: our choice and how much is what we're born with you know when you ask how much I can't answer that. I don't know how to quantify it. Right. Uh, that question, though, is one that I started to think about or become aware of, I'll, I'll put it that way. Not when I was real young, but when I first started to go to school, and college, that is. And you know, you'd know, you find people talking about it, and then I, I suppose what you're asking is is the nature versus nurture mm. kind of an issue. Right. And I don't know how to quantify that. Some of the things that I remark on for myself, though, in in thinking about it, number one, on the one side, let's go like from the nature part of it. Every once in a while, I'll say something or tell a joke or something like that, or my sister Sharon will do it. And, you know, we'll chide each other because it was the same corny joke that our dad's you know, said, mm-hmm. and, you know, I'm sure you, you've probably heard the line that when you get old enough, soon you're going to find out that, you know, you're a lot like your parents, your father, your mother, mm-hmm. et cetera. Right. So, you know, to me, there's a part that you can't divorce from what we're born with, you know, our genes, you know, I look at you, I'm sorry, but I see a lot of me, <laughs> you know, in your visage, you know, so there's that, that, that part of it. But then on the other hand, as it relates to, you know, n- nurture, you know, the things that you grow up with. Like I said, my upbringing wasn't what your upbringing was. You know, I had freedoms that you didn't experience. So, I, I, I don't, you know, know how to separate all of that. But in balancing it or thinking it through in my own mind, one of the things that I think about, though, is although I am a product of my parents' genes, you know, you know, And their influences, you know, the way they raised me and other things like that. But I'm also still a unique individual, you know, created by God as me and and myself alone, you know. And in that respect, I think that then I'm fully responsible for all of my own choices, you know, all of my own decisions, my acts, you know, they're mine. I know that there's some kind of influence in them. But yet, uh, you know, they're me and my, you know, mine, and <laughs> I'm responsible for them. So how to quantify all that, I don't know. Hmm. Uh, do we all have a fate? I don't believe that at all. I, I totally reject the idea of fatalism. And with it, now, like lately, say, for example, I do a lot of, you know, like arguing political issues on on Facebook. And you know i hear and i know you know they'll talk about like some of the bad things that say like biden has done or some some other kind of politician and they talk about karma g- getting you right well, i don't believe in karma and i don't believe in fate i believe that again like i'll tie it to what i just said that i'm born as an individual and i have responsibility for me and i have the freedom for my choices and decisions opinions and beliefs actions you know, everything. And so, you know, with that, I I just reject the idea of fatalism.
1: What's the difference between wisdom and intelligence?
2: The difference that I I would see in it, and and again, I'm going to tie it into another kind of a thing, because I've already talked about creation, and pretty much everything I'm going to say talks ties it in with this. You know, the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of wisdom. And... The fear of the Lord, as I understand it, has to do with knowledge of Him, respect, reverence, awe, accountability, all of those things, you know, tied into it. When I talk about the fear of the Lord, I have to interject another word or associate another word with it, and that would be truth. Because God is truth, Jesus is truth, the word that He has left us, that is truth. Intelligence, as I understand it, again, like I'll tie it in with what you asked about, like how much of me is nature nurture. I think there's part of what we have by way of our intelligence that comes from our genetic makeup, you know, what our intellectual capabilities are, etc. But to me, intelligence is more than that. It also involves, you know, what we've given ourselves to by way of study, by learning, whether formally or informally. The way I would understand the difference between them is that wisdom is, I don't want to say, the ability to apply your intelligence to make judicious decisions. I know the word is used and it, ha- it has a, a sense where we understand it, but I know technically there is no such thing as common sense. But for you know, for our purposes and to understand it that way, I, I think that's part of what wisdom is. Is to be able to make good decisions based on on the on you know in, on your intelligence on the things that you know, you know, to apply I guess truth to whatever situation that you're in. So,
1: well, this is a, a very common thing that you hear in these days. So this I think is a good question to ask people:
2: Is truth subjective? I can answer that in one word: No. <laughs> Not even. You know what? To me is interesting is I, I debate with some of the people who want to argue that point, and they'll do it in a couple of ways. One, that there is just absolutely no such thing well, as objective truth, that it's relative. You have your truth, I have my truth, Right. and that's the extent of truth. You know, what's interesting about that, especially when I hear it applied by various kinds of Marxists, <laughs> When, when they espouse their view, which they don't really have any facts to back it up, but in denying you, the, you know, the position that there is such a thing as objective truth, they dismiss it totally, but to dismiss it totally, then they themselves are standing on a, what they're going to say. Yeah, they won't say it that way, but for them, it's an objective truth. Right. <laughs> it's an objective truth that there is no objective truth. So they deny themselves in that, in, in that regard. Now, for me, I've already mentioned a couple of times, you know, taking it back to God, truth, his word. That has to be the cornerstone of all truth. Cornerstone for a couple of reasons. One, because he is the creator. He is the first cause. There is no truth without that. As I understand it, there is no science without that. Because we have an ordered universe. Our body is that way. My body is a lot like yours. You can go to the doctor and the doctor can treat you because he knows the intricacies of your creation, but it's my creation too. It's all ordered. Even the idea of mathematics, you know, it doesn't make sense. The world didn't start with uh, the Big Bang. An explosion doesn't create order. And uh, to me, it's kind of laughable that people say that there is no such thing as objective truth. So,
1: Well, when you have something that you, you believe or that you know, why should someone be unafraid to share what they believe?
2: I think that there's a sense where you can be unafraid. And I think there's also a place <laughs> where there is fear. Sure. For example, we live in a cancel culture. And uh, you get attacked for saying the truth. And so I think it's natural to have fear for what could happen to you. You know, it's like President Trump to have his ability to communicate on Twitter, to be kicked out of the out of the public square. Some people have lost their jobs. they've lost their income. So there is a natural part of fear. But for me, then the issue comes down to is, do I have the courage to speak the truth? And am I going to stand up and say what is right? Am I going to say what I believe is to be true? Am I going to defend my principles? So yeah, there can be fear, but do you have the courage to act beyond your fear and to speak the truth?
1: What do you think the reward is? when you speak the truth and you're penalized for it.
2: One of the rewards for me is uh, your own integrity, that you have stayed true to yourself and to your beliefs, your convictions. You know, you might pay the price for it. I did that, I don't know how much you know about it, Paul. I don't know if I've ever told you the details about it. But when I was a professor in the Philippines, I, through study, came to understand a particular verse in scripture that really went against the theology of the group that I that I was associated with. When I studied as a matter of fact, one time I was looking at it and studying it from the Greek, I called up a friend of mine, he was also the, the leader of our school, and I said, John, you look at this, this particular verse in scripture saying is that if you're divorced and, and if you remarried, you have not sinned, okay? That was anathema to the group that I was with. But at any rate, what happened then is one time when I was teaching down in, uh, I think it was Iloilo city in the Philippines to a group of mostly Filipinos, but there were other students there too. I taught that and I, and I explained why, you know, that this Greek word, you know, the, the meaning of it, how it was used, etc. And I knew that it would get blowback, and it did get blowback. And I was then required to go and talk with the, the president of the—we we met in, on the, the college campus of a Filipino school. And, uh, you know, I basically got—not uh, invited, but summons to an inquisition mm. for, you know, teaching what I believed to be. But I, I felt that I was true to the Scriptures— and I had to say what I said. I paid a price for it, but my conscience was cleared. So I was banned from ever even teaching there again because of that. So,
1: Have you noticed a growing obsession with safety?
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to not. Yeah. And the reason there's a growing obsession with safety, as I look at it, is that there's a growing obsession of fear. Mm-hmm. And almost obsessions, maybe not the right word to use, but it is in this sense. When I look at history, from the French Revolution to today, totalitarians and the French Revolutionists were totalitarians. And actually, for me, it was the root of Marxism that that came with the Jacobins in the French Revolution. Everyone who knows anything about the French Revolution is familiar with the word guillotine because lots of heads rolled. You know, it was a horrible period. But it was also called the reign of terror. And those totalitarians, much like Marxists of today, had similar beliefs, hated God, hated Christianity. They arrogate to themselves the prerogatives of God. But they ruled through terror and fear because terror and fear is a great motivator. Yeah. You can control people through that. I'll jump ahead just to touch point, you know, with what I'm looking at today. We just ended up, I shouldn't say we ended up, we're leaving two years of mass fear, intentionally produced fear. And when I say we're leaving it, I just went to the doctors the other day and they're warning me before I go into the office, put your mask on, put, you know, and for me, it's long, long time ago, we should have had those masks off, but people are still operating in fear. And to me, it was all intentionally produced. And it was intentionally produced for the same reason that the French revolutionists did. It was to control. Lenin and Stalin, Marxists, no, no real difference than the French revolutionaries. They, you know, made the cold calculated decision to rule in fear. Hitler, also a Marxist, same cold calculation to rule in fear. Fear does a number of things to people. But when we look at what fear did to those societies and to those people, is it, it crushed their spirit for one thing. And I look at here in America, what took place over the past two years. The fear that I see was used to crush much of what it means to be an American, to be a free person, to have individual rights. And uh, those rights include not only the right to speak, because all of the social media sites censored you for what they called disinformation, Mm. which was simply nothing but a weapon to crush free speech. Not only did they crush free speech, but they crushed free association. Uh, You weren't allowed to go here. You weren't allowed to go there. You were limited. You know, six people here, you know, used to be, you know, now you can't do it. They crushed freedom of religion. I can remember one of the earlier stories that came out of uh, when they first started the, I'll say clamp down, lockdown, whatever, when they had police force arresting people who met in a church in a church parking lot sitting in their cars. Yeah. So the clampdown was even a, to crush freedom of worship, freedom of association, freedom of speech. And to me, one of the greatest and to, and, and it really, really irritates me to this day and, and it makes my heart break is how many people lost their businesses. Yeah. And it was purposeful. They They just had their property, their livelihoods, crushed by the government, taken away. And when I see what happens, too, in taking away their property, their rights, their employment, their livelihoods, it crushed their families. And it enriched all the big people, their their colleagues. Amazon growth went through the roof. And the owner of Amazon is a tyrant. He's a Marxist. He's an anti-American bully, you know, who is a... A comrade of the Democrat Party, so you know I, I just see it as a great assault on the middle class of America, on the individual of America, to crush our to crush our rights and our liberty. So, and that's how much of that was fear. Fear was the cornerstone of it. You know, they started it off with uh, the bogus projection of 220 million people might die, and nobody knew what this new virus was. And they keyed on that. And now, from my reading, I've learned, too, that all of these lockdown processes and the procedures that they implemented had all been developed years ahead of time. Right. And so they're waiting for the opportunity to to use them. Again, to, to, to me, I, I can put it in these words. Not only did it crush the middle class, which the middle class is the strength of this country, but I look at it as a coup upon America. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Is it possible to live freely and also live in f- in fear?
2: Yeah, and it gets back to what I said earlier about uh, courage, and and I'm not trying to make it, make this sound anything like grandiose or anything like that. But I, I mentioned that I go on Facebook, I get censored, I get locked up in thirty, 30 days Facebook jail about every other month. <laughs> But it's not going to stop the way I speak. Now, like I said, I'm not trying to make that grandiose. But I'm going to speak what is truth. And I'm going to speak my truth against the evil of the Democrats. And it's the lie of the, of the Democrats. And I'm going to do that no, ma- no matter what. So, you know, I, I, to live freely and in fear, I'm going to live, f- you know, there's, there's fear of what the government will do. And we're seeing more and more how our government, especially under the Democrat Party, is really the Gestapo or the KGB. And my wife has said to me often, you, you shouldn't write that. You know, they're, you're going to be on their list. I know that. But I'm going to speak my truth. So... So, yeah, we can live live free. <laughs> and there, there's fear, but it, you have to have, you know, the, the, a certain amount of courage to say what you believe and not be silenced. If someone was to
1: ask, how does
2: one live freely?
1: How would you answer that? How does one live freely?
2: I'll tie it back again like with something that I said earlier. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I talked about, you know, like truth and topics like that earlier. So so for me that's part of like knowing that you have to well, that god has to be honored, your convictions have to be honored, what I am as a child of god in the sense of creation that has to be honored. And I'm an individual if I'm going to be an individual created to be free. To have an opinion, to have a voice, and so even though you might face a threat, if you're going to be free, you have to do it. Because if you're not, you've all of a sudden become a subject. Hmm. And I don't—I'm not going to live on my knees, especially to a Marxist Democrat. It's not going to happen. So, and something that I read some time ago now, I don't remember the name of the book, but I was interested in it because I was reading, I was reading about Germany and Hitler and all of that, and how the Germany of the 30s was a very cosmopolitan, uh, on cutting edge in science and so many other kinds of things, and by and large, a Christian nation. And how was it then that they came to be under the thumb of Marxist dictator? So I said, well, I'd like to read the history of Germany. I've never read, like, the old history of Germany. I've read lots about, you know, World War World War II Germany. But I read this book that told the history of Germany all the way back hundreds of years before Christ. These wild German tribes. But they had something that, uh, I mean, they were scattered throughout all the woods in, in Germany. And they had... Like when a man became an age, like a boy, a teenager, you weren't a man until you got a weapon. And when you had that weapon, then like you could come to the to the council meetings when they gathered the tribes and, and got together to, like their clans. And, you know, part of that was like to be a warrior, to be free and to be a responsible, you know, man and a responsible citizen. But you had to be brave to do that, you know, so a phrase that is a part of our
1: our founding is the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. What do you think the pursuit of happiness means?
2: Well, I I think it means a whole lot more than the way we would talk about just being happy. Right. Doing, you know, like, uh, do you feel good today? <laughs> you know? Right. I, I think it's more than that. From what I've read, a lot of... Uh, the word happiness, and I'm not going to say that they're like synonyms, but in the context of the discussions that the founders had with happiness, that you'd often see the word property used. Right. So, and again, they're not synonyms, but they're related. And I think they're related in, in this sense that, again, speaking of our rights— you know, only some, some of them were just, you know, enumerated in the, in the Declaration, in the, in the Bill of Rights, but not all. And I think part of Western civilization and how we understand what we are as the creation of God, you know, the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that the pursuit of happiness is kind of like, to me, an extension of life and liberty— and life and liberty lived in society you know with other people because right after that phrase in in the declaration then it talks about you know because of this we have just government is organized you know to be able to protect our rights and part of that as a responsible citizenship to me involves the right of property and that i'm Uh, like a property owner, a responsible citizen. I'm exercising all of my rights, individual. And so, I I see it kind of like as a full thing like that. All You know, talk about maybe like living to the full potential of what I am as a free man. That's how I understand it to be, like the pursuit of happiness. And again, I used the word earlier, the phrase, uh, not as a subject, that uh, I have a right to my my opinion, I have a right to my voice, I have a right to my worship, I have a right to my free association, I have a right to this property, that, that this is my home, this is my domicile, that I have for my family, etc. And it's interesting to me that like with those rights, that what we see now, I can't remember how many years ago it's been, but there's a growing, from the Democrats especially, a growing assault on property rights, and for me, it's infringing on all of the, all of those rights. Well, th- this I think is a really big
1: question, and I like asking people this. So I'll ask you:
2: uh, Where do rights come from? Well, I've mentioned it a couple times already. I think I've talked often about you know first cause, which would be God, our Creator. My rights come from God, etc. Our founding fathers, you, know, knew that. That's the cornerstone, to me, of the foundation of America, you know, where, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that's life liberty and the pursuit of happiness. So for me, our rights come from God. By virtue of what I am, create as a creation of God. Same for all, you know, all people, men, women. And to me, again, it's interesting that you know I mentioned the French Revolution. That was one of the first things that they attacked was our individual rights in our relationship to God and Christianity. You know, they knocked down, you know, churches. They killed priests, etc instituted their own their own religion. And it was interesting, too, that in the French Revolution, the thought just came into my mind. You know, they even began it like as a new creation. That, okay, now we're on day one, year one. They marked it as a beginning of time. Hmm. And I find it interesting because creation obviously went before the French Revolution. But it, to me, is the mindset of totalitarians. And I see it in the communists. I see it in the fascists, I see it in the Nazis, and I see it also in in the Democrats. The Democrats are doing the same thing because they all of them arrogate to themselves the prerogatives of God. And we see that in the Democrats specifically with their assault on infants. And I call it a genocide where they have slaughtered 60 million babies, innocent babies. They've outstripped any communists. They've outstripped, by far, the genocide of Hitler. They've outstripped the genocide of Stalin. They've outstripped the genocide of Mao. And they've killed 60 million innocent babies. And to me, it comes from, you know, the same thing, rights. They don't see that people have rights. They deny the right to life of 60 million innocents. In America, well, for me, like from the beginning, Democrats have never, ever had any respect for the values and principles of our founding. And I can just illustrate that very, very quickly just by two things. As the beginning of the Democrats, they saw themselves as white supremacists. They identified themselves that. Now today they'll they'll deny it, of course, and they try to make Republicans to be the white supremacists. But they were the slavers. Not only were they the slavers, but Andrew Jackson was the one who instigated the the uh, trail of tears and purging the southeast where we live now of all the Cherokees, you know. So they're 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 racist. As time went on, uh, of course they demonstrated their tyranny too in tearing the Union apart and plunging the nation into what I call their war of rebellion. And that was in large measure to do away with our Constitution, which was formed to protect the rights of individuals. Now, the Democrats were only interested in protecting the rights of whites because they, I don't know if you know, that they developed their own constitution, and that constitution was purposefully constructed to acknowledge white supremacy and and the inferior position of blacks that they were always to be slaves. That was in their constitution. So that was one of the big reasons behind the Civil War. Democrats did it again later in the early 1900s under Wilson. And again, they got rid of our Constitution. Now, they did it in a bold way, but yet in a sneaky kind of way, which is something that Marxists are always doing. But Wilson, when he talked about our Constitution, i back up and I'll talk about the Declaration first. He said, like the Democrats today too, and I said they have never had any respect or regard for the values and principles of our founding. Wilson said that the Declaration of Independence was nothing more than a relic of its time, hmm. that it was irrelevant to us today, that basically the Constitution was relegated only to the period of the Revolution. He used terms to describe it, that it was, it's nothing more than a list of grievances. Let's say just grievances, but that's all that it is. But what he did purposefully is the section that we just talked about a little while ago, that, you know, we acknowledge that our rights came from God. That's the part that Wilson didn't like, and that's the part that he ignored, and that's the part that he wanted to get rid of, because Democrats do not acknowledge that our rights come from God. It wasn't long after Wilson that another Democrat followed, who I would consider to be a real facet, a fascist. And that, is, and he's one of the Democrats greatest heroes, FDR. But FDR followed in that same thing with the development of Marxism in, in the Democrat Party, by issuing what is called the Second Bill of Rights. That's been picked up even today. Biden has done the same thing. He has re, regurgitated, I'll use that word, the Second Bill of Rights. Not long ago, Biden in talking about, you know, because he's come right out and said that he wants to take away the right of all law-abiding Americans to bear arms, and he said that our our rights—I can't remember the word, I think I jotted it down—yeah, he said they're not absolute. Mm. They most certainly are absolute because they're granted by God. But from the over the last century plus, Democrats have fought against those rights. And it gets back to that same principle again, from the French Revolution to the communist revolution, to the Nazi takeover of Germany. All of these Marxists arrogate to themselves the prerogatives of God. The Democrats today are doing the same thing. They tell us that no, rights don't come from God. They come from the state, that the state has the prerogative to grant rights and to control rights. And even to remove rights and when i talk about removing rights look how much they're censoring today and crushing free speech so even you know killing people's businesses because they don't like what they do in their work or what their beliefs are
1: i've commonly stumped people when they've said well rights clearly come from our government and i say well if rights come from our government then governments always change yeah how are you in any way
2: going to keep your rights? Yeah. Never, ever gotten really a solid no, answer. Uh-uh. Another part of that too, uh, Paul, would be if rights come from government, they're they're a privilege granted, right. n- not, not an actual right. They're a temporary privilege. Right. So, if it
1: comes from government, it can be revoked at any time. Yeah.
2: What the government can uh, give you, they can take away. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how is America unique? I think a lot of what I've been talking about for this, this past period of time kind of relates to it, because I've touched on it from the very, very beginning, talking about what we are by way of creation. When I say what we are by way of creation, our founders, they started off their thinking that way. They talked about what we learn from natural rights, They talked about the God of nature. When they talked about the God of nature, they weren't talking about some kind of a a pantheistic idea of God, but they're talking about the God who is the creator of all, the ruler ruler of nature. The founders, when they... I I read a book not too long ago. To me, it was really fascinating. And I'm going to give it to you later because I think you were asking about like a, a book recommendation. They argued with each other for 15 years about what America is going to be. I mean, the questions are, I'm amazed at our founders, because when you look at the things that they argued about, their points of reference in the discussion, talking about what the Greek philosopher said, what Roman senators talked about, you know, that was like common knowledge to them all. They talked about Philosophy. They talked about theology and they argued back and forth with it. So that by the time it came time then to really, I'll say, birth America, they had really settled ideas about what it was. And what it was is unlike any nation that has ever, ever been created in the history of the world. It was founded, like I said, on on the on the idea of, you know, that uh, God's creation. And so it's different and unique in that way. There's no other nation that is founded on biblical principles that, that I know of, uh, that I'm aware of. And, you know, that they would argue and debate it and think about it that way too. America didn't come into being the product of, uh, look at so many genera- you know, or nations around the world, they're either run by like a dictator who has you know a legacy, pass it down to his sons or whatever, or royalty, you know, the divine rights of kings or, you know, what, whatever, or some kind of feudalistic society or whatever. America was born as, as a free nation. So there, that's a unique thing. I, I know years ago, like Obama was asked that question, and in typical Democrat fashion, He had no regard for the exceptionalness of America. Matter of fact, he has a lot. He's apologized for America. But he said, yeah, we are exceptional in the same sense that English people are going to say we're exceptional. But it's not, or, you know, anybody else or French people are going to say we're exceptional. No, to me, it has to do with what we are, how we came into being, the fact that we, you know, even the phrase as it begins, like, we the people. Mm no nation is ever born by we, the people. And, you know, with that phrase, we, the people, it isn't that they just met together, but, you know, to say, yeah, let's, let's do this. But it's also a statement of where the authority is in our nation, that we are a self-governing people, that we are free. We enter into an agreement to have a government to protect our rights, but the authority is in the individual Americans, you know, together. So to me, there's so much about what America is as an exceptional nation, not in a braggadocious kind of way, but there's a lot to be awful proud about that we are privileged to live in this country and have a heritage of individual rights and liberty that people around the world don't have. You know, just last month in Canada with the trucker's strike, for example, Right. they saw the tyranny that can easily crush free speech, more than free speech. That clown up there, you know, Trudeau was hauling away trucks and the livelihoods of people, crushing them on what basis, on what authority? Well, Canada, same as England, same as Australia. Australia during the, the pandemic, they had terrible repression and crushed. None of those countries have a, a protection of freedom of speech. I don't know of any country around the world that has. They might have the heritage, like English-speaking countries like Canada, they do. They know that they're supposed to have free speech, but they have no protection for it. Right. Yeah. And we do, uh, as much as a p- piece of paper is, but it's more our commitment to defend that piece of paper. So.
1: Well, you're certainly exercising that right. <laughs> <laughs> Who is the most brilliant person you've
2: ever met? That's hard for me to pick. Uh, it really is. Uh, in my life, you know, I've had uh, opportunity to, to get to rub shoulders with a lot of really, really smart men, and a few women too. But you know, one that I admired and looked up to was like the president of my school when I was in, the, you know, in Southeast Asia, John Lewis. It, it was funny. He's, I think, he was from Kentucky, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, but he had a southern accent. You know, but uh, he was Phi Beta Capita, and decades ago he was working on, you know, like, I forget, like missile technology or, you know, whatever. But a lot of people, like with him and his wife, though, they would say, you know, they would automatically say you're a dummy because of the Southern accent. But he was smart as a whip and uh, a good mind. But when I really think about it, I went back to try to isolate one person, and that would be... When I went, my college, I went to Baptist Bible College in Clarksville, Pennsylvania, and a history teacher, Western Civ teacher that I had, Dr. Rembert Carter. He was, a, I, I would say he, he was a genius. He would just speak, and this knowledge would just flow endlessly from him. And we called him Mr. Baptist. Of course, I went to a Baptist school. But I never met anybody who knew so much history and church history and specifically the history of the Baptist, I'll say heritage, I'll say it that way, because there were a lot of people in the world who believed in Baptist principles but weren't necessarily identified as Baptist. He used to stutter and some I heard, and I don't know if it's true or not, that the reason he did is that his mind was working faster than his mouth would go. Hmm. But, uh, you know, we called him Mr. Baptist. And I had him also for uh, a Greek teacher. And, you know, just to sit around a small room with him and like read from the Greek New Testament and him just expound on things. And it was, uh, you know, it was almost, uh, and I, uh, I gotta be careful with this, but you're just in, in awe sitting at, you know, a, a man who was so accomplished. So he was, a, I think, the smartest man that I'd ever met.
1: You started to hint at this just a few
2: minutes ago, but is there a book you could recommend? Yeah, I I, I noted two of them. One of them, I gave you a copy of it sometime. The other one, I haven't, but I have it, and I'll, I'll lend it to you if, if you want to read it. And that one is called... The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution. Oh, I would and love I, that. And I mentioned a little bit about, like, the people arguing for 15 years. And specifically, there was a decade when it got close to the revolution and formulation, you know, Birthing America, where, you know, they really hammered and tongued. And like I said to me, I enjoyed it for a couple of reasons. Number one, to see the focus of of what went into the development of America. you know, And it's codified for us on paper with the Declaration and the Constitution. And the two can't be separated. The Constitution is kind of like the expression of the Declaration as it relates to how you're going to govern what's in the Declaration. That's, that's how I see the two. But it gave me an appreciation for the arguments and my goodness, that they, that, like I said, they talked about theology and philosophy, history. I mean, it was just, just amazing. You know, today we're talking about like the nation is consumed with this Will Smith slapping. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean that's, <laughs> and people argue about it and debate that, and it's trivial crap. You know, if I can use any any other word, and here are these men, and and it wasn't just a select few. There were all kinds of people. They argued about this stuff in the pulpits. The pastors preached it. So the common man was exposed to it. This is what their daily life was. It was in the newspapers. It was in pamphlets. It's, It's, you know, thousands and thousands of publications. So I admire that book for that because it gave me insight into more detail as to what it was. But then also just the nature of what those early Americans were like. And, uh, you know, to me, I regard the founders as geniuses and really, really unique men. You know, to me, they're God-gifted men in, in a certain way. And so I valued that book for that reason. The other one, I got it sitting over there, and that is American Betrayal, The Secret Assault on Our Nation's Character. I think that book, every American ought to read it. Because when it talks about the secret assault, and I've alluded to it already by way of the Democrats, because the Democrats have pretended to be loyal Americans, they never have been. From the very beginning days of slavers, they have been working to undo the Constitution. Then in the early 1900s, with Wilson and the Democrats, they undermined the Constitution. So much so that today, you know, they'll say they honored the Constitution, but the Constitution of the Democrats is a counterfeit Constitution. And the Bill of Rights that they have is a counterfeit Bill of Rights. Like I said there, with FDR up to today, they talk about a second Bill of Rights. The Democrats' second Bill of Rights supersedes our Bill of Rights. Because like Biden said, no, they're, they're not absolute. We can change those. So to themselves, again, they arrogate to themselves, to the prerogatives of God, that they'll give you that. From the earliest days, Democrats have worked to subvert America. And some of it is very, very clear. But I'll just talk about like the modern age and with what happened, like going into, you know, like from Wilson on with World War One, World War Two, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, all of these forces that we even see today that are taking place, there to me is... A Marxist coup attempting to subvert America, and so I think that that book outlays or lays out a lot of it, and that's why I think that every American ought to read that book to see, expose the secret assault to see to see the real assault that is taking place. You know, going back again to FDR, his administration was was filled with communists. He appointed communists to serve on the. On the founding committee of the UN, and so we wonder why the UN is so bankrupt today. Well, look where it started. You know, it started with communists on the on the on the organizing committee. So, those two books I would say, i mean, there's you know the scores of good books, but as far as being an American, when I thought about two, I thought, well, that one to show us our beginning, and then the other one to show how the ongoing assault by the Democrats has been that lays out only a part of it you know you could read anything about progressives to see that assault because progressivism is actually marxism
1: well going to a different topic what do you admire most in another person
2: i think uh, you know that it has to be like the qualities of like some of the things we've talked about here truth a person who's going to be truthful Loyalty means a lot to me. I've had friends stand by me and I've stood by friends, but I know times too, when I've broken those things in my own life and uh, the pain that, you know, that's resulted in the harm, the harm that gets done. So I know, you know, what I, you know, I, I know what I, you know, admire. Truthfulness, honesty, loyalty. And today, the, those things to me all combine and wrap up because of the the threat. I'm going to relate it to politics again, because unfortunately, in going back to the beginning, like you asked about what America was like of the 50s, America was free. There was a freedom in America that we don't have today. When I was a teenager, for example, I lived in a fairly good size town. I don't remember the size of it at, at that time. But I had my best friend. He lived probably about two miles away from me. I could put my shotgun over my shoulder, have my hunting clothes on, and walk down one street after another through our town and have a cop ride by you, wave at the cop. And I'd pick him up. And then from his, where he lived, he lived on the edge of town. And then we could just walk across his street, and we'd be in the woods and start hunting for the day. But I had that kind of freedom. When our, our high school, one of our gym teachers, Danny Devers, he was a big duck hunter. We could go to his house, and uh, you know, he'd teach us, give us information about duck hunting. He'd show us his guns, et cetera. And so there, there was a, a freedom, and we don't, we don't have that today. But now, like a kid. If you point your finger at somebody, they accuse you of, you know, <laughs> like a, assault with a deadly weapon. You know, the kids can't even play, you know, guns, you know, arm, you know, cops and robbers or cowboys and Indians or anything like that. And those are small things, but we definitely have like a crushing of our, our free speech and others too. All The Democrats are assaulting all of our rights and our liberty. And so for me, I'm rambling a little bit, but trying to connect it in my mind. Like I said, being truthful, being loyal, being honest, in this day and age, that combines to me to be patriotic, to be a patriot. Because America, to me, as I look at it, we're in the 12th hour. I I don't want to be a doomsayer or a pessimist, but what I look at, the light of America is going out, and that's by intent by plan, by purpose of the Democrats. They want to crush our lights or, you know, snuff our light out and crush our rights. And so to me, and I have the privilege of knowing, you know, because I was a Marine and served with so many people, and I still communicate with them and see their spirit, and they want to preserve America, you know. Looking at the news this morning, for example, there was one... Brett Velikovich, he he was he served in Afghanistan, Iraq, etc., and he's now not unlike other Marines and Army guys who were in Ukraine. Some of them are actually fighting; they got a rifle in their hands. But others of them are there, and they're defending oppressed people, like like Velikovich. He's like taking supplies over to them and all of that kind of stuff. Or like when Afghanistan fell, when the Afghanistans and the Americans there were, were betrayed by Biden and the Democrats, there was all kind of veterans who went back in there to, to rescue people. And so for me, my heart beats for those kind of people who, you know, they're a patriot here, but that patriotism is like, you're going to defend oppressed people, you know. Now, I was a Marine, but I admire Green Berets. And, you know, they talk about their motto. I'm not sure I can quote it exactly, but I think it's like to free the oppressed. And that's certainly a worthy motto. And I see them living that out. So, you know, when I see men like that today, that's what I admire in people, you know. so This last question, I was thinking
1: there's going to be people who listen to this who either find themselves strongly agreeing with what you have to say. Yeah or vehemently oh i know that yeah. opposed to what you have to say yeah if you could include all of them everybody who's listening wherever or whenever
2: they hear this what would you say to them oh i don't know what to say except uh you know and I, I i get flack from democrats all the time but it's always on the on the basis of ideology and emotions and emotions, partic- primarily hatred. And when I challenge them, like I get called a fascist, they'll say, and some of these people will say, I'm a fascist. And I say, prove it. What What is there about me as a fascist that you see in Hitler? <laughs> his actions, jot down his actions, jot down his words, and then compare mine and tell me how I'm a fascist. So I'm, I'm just saying that to, to get to this point. Pretty much everything I've said, I can back up. I can show you the history of the Democrats, and I've alluded to them. I haven't given you specifics, for example. I've pretty much like talking about Wilson and his regard for the Declaration and the, and the Constitution. The Constitution, the Declaration, he said, it was irrelevant for us today. The Constitution, what he said was that it was ineffective for a modern society to govern them. All right. And he said that all the way back, you know, like 110 years ago or whatever it was. And so to those who would have with me, like for me, I know his words. And I would point them, well, you go back and study it yourself. See what he actually said. And then tell me if I'm wrong, you know. Hmm. So I know my history because I read it. These, you know, most of the, most of the critics, they haven't read their history. They All they know is they can regurgitate the sound bites and the approved propaganda scripts of their party. So here's the truth. Study the truth. Find the truth for yourself. So,
1: And what about the, those people who are listening who say right on?
2: That's, I mean, I give them a high five. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh-huh.
1: Well, thank you very much for this. Uh-huh. Thank you for answering these questions so uh, carefully. All right, thank you. Enjoyed. I enjoyed
0: it too, Paul. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepauleslie.com. That's thepauleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primorano, the entertainer, written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primorano, the traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie, and we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.